thanks for <laughs> I will tilt I'll tilt this way. Please don't bother uh, looking that way. But it's it's really good to see you, and uh, we will uh, make a start uh, in in just a minute. I I hope I realise there aren't very many of us here this evening, but I hope this is helpful uh, and and thought provoking. And uh, maybe I'm not the only one among us who's been hearing a lot of stuff over the last few months about Chat GBT and uh, other things, and uh, I just got thinking about this and thought, well, how do, how do we make sense of this, uh, not just as people but uh, or bystanders, but as, as Christians uh, and followers of Jesus? So um, we will have a go. I, I admit to being, uh, this will be very much a lay person's <laughs> perspective, at least on technology, uh, so if when we come to question times, th th there are some of us who I know do know more about this uh, than I do, certainly from a technology perspective, it would be interesting to, uh, to hear what you think, but um, we'll, we'll see how we go. Shall we pray? And, uh, and then we'll get into this, and uh, sort of a bit of time of reflection from me, and then some group discussion, uh, and then we'll come back together. So... Um, Thank you, Love and God, for this opportunity just to come together and explore and reflect. I pray that this would be helpful and uh, constructful, uh, constructive uh, and useful to us to think on these things and just to attempt as your disciples to know and to uh, understand a little more. Uh, and uh, we just remember that you say uh, so many times to us in your work not to be afraid. This is not about... Uh, conjuring up lots of uh, doomsday scenarios, but more to think thoughtfully and critically. How is our world changing? And in that world, how do you want us to uh, follow you and speak of you uh, to others and tell of your love to others and demonstrate it? So we ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, We'll begin, and uh, just uh, to set the scene, uh, I thought that uh, it might be interesting to, uh, if you join me in Paris uh, in 2018, uh, for the unveiling of a never-before piece of art, never-before-seen in public, and uh, I think it's going to come up, thanks Mark, this portrait of a man called Edmond de Bellamy don't know if we've come across uh, this piece of work before. Uh, and you may be looking at this and wondering who is this painting of. So to put you uh, out of your suspense, Edward de Bellamy is not a real person. Uh, and nor was the painting uh, the work of an artist. Instead, it was created using software called GANS, Generative Adversarial Network, uh, and Edmund is a fictitious character, uh, and uh, the painting was produced in Paris by uh, a group called uh, Obvious. And they used their software to study 15,000 portraits uh, from the 14th and 15th century, and then asked it to generate a painting among similar lines. So. If you're able to look closely, you will see that in the bottom right-hand corner, where normally there would be the signature of an artist, uh, there is uh, a part of algorithm code uh, 
that was produced to, um, or was used to produce the painting. I don't know, if you look at this for a moment, you might just want to take a few moments to think, what, what do we make of this? Uh, when the piece first came out, it was described by one critic as stale, unoriginal, uh, and boring, <laughs> which, which I think seems fair enough, actually. It's not amazing, is it? Uh, it looks to me uh, a bit underwhelming. Uh, but it's interesting to uh, just think about the some of the questions this raises. So the critic says it's unoriginal. And on one level, you could say that it is. Because it is based on a lot of other pieces of art by other artists. But the software has still produced something which never existed before. No one has ever seen this painting of Edward de Bellamy prior to that gathering uh, of, of people in Paris. And in many ways, you could say it's just using a machine to do what a lot of artists have done for years. So various people produce uh, paintings or pieces of music which are pastiches of other artists' work. And they knock it off kind of as their own, but in a derivative way. They, they don't pretend it's any different. And uh, although it's a bit blurry, isn't it? And uh, the use of colour is nothing to write home about. It's not Rembrandt, let's be honest. Not the return of the prodigal um, when you look at the background. Gives you a sense of how much more powerful this technology could become. Interestingly, when Christie's took this to auction uh, and they marketed it as uh, the first artwork created using artificial intelligence, they had a guide price on it of 7000 to $10,000, and it fetched $432,000. So uh, uh, there's gold in them, there are hills, uh, which seem to be the conclusion, and we will, we will get into that more as we go on. And I just thought it's an interesting story, and maybe it's just a, a little bit of a way uh, of getting into this subject, which is vast, and that's one of the things we just need to acknowledge at the beginning. It is absolutely vast and uh, it's one of the things I find quite challenging uh, just trying to grapple with how huge the topic is uh, and how it's being applied in so many different ways this technology. Uh, so inevitably we might feel like we're just scratching the surface but we'll, we'll have a go. Now it might be useful just to begin with to think a little bit about where this term artificial intelligence came from. And uh, historians uh, attribute it to uh, this man, his picture will be on the screen, uh, and this is uh, John McCarthy. Uh, he's a mathematician. Uh, it's a picture of him later in his career uh, when he went on to develop a program called Lisp, uh, which I gather is still being used today. But... Uh, in 1956, John McCarthy organized a workshop at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire in the United States. It was a summer event, and uh, this is commonly credited as being the moment when artificial intelligence was brought onto the world stage. And when he advertised the workshop uh, to colleagues, this is how he described its aims. So he said that he wanted to bring them together to explore the conjecture that every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence 
can, in principle, be so precisely described that a machine can be made to stimulate it. An attempt will be made to find how to make machines use language, form abstractions and concepts, and solve the kinds of problems now reserved for humans and improve themselves. So, big vision. Uh, and so it all began. And you could say, I think, but broadly speaking, McCarthy was paving the way for a whole range of technology whereby machines are able to take language and data and other concepts and they can process the information given to them and then apply it to offer solutions or questions uh, or predictions about uh, the next sequence of data or events and where it's going. And we use this all the time in lots of different ways. So if we use predictive text on a phone, it's this sort of principle. And uh, I started off a text message on my phone uh, when I was preparing for this. I type in, shall we go for a walk, ride, drink? You know, uh, there's, there's people who have worked very hard to be able to predict what the next word in lots of our sequences might be. We will all be familiar, uh, I'm sure, with going on to company websites and being invited to ask questions, not of a person, but of a virtual assistant. So uh, if, uh, like me, you use Vodafone and you ever attempt to get any answer uh, out of them, you will invariably be uh, directed to Toby. Hi, Trevor, I'm Toby. Oh, I'm so friendly. And uh, I'm Vodafone's chatbot ask me anything. Uh, I'm, I'm here to help. And we try and use this stuff and all the time we wish, I just, I just wish there was a human being who was at the other end of the line. And lots of other ways this is used. If you ever receive an email from your supermarket and they're offering you money off tokens and you think it's almost as if they know what I want to buy before I know it myself, it's because they do. It's, it's all different ways in which uh, this is um, being used. And I guess a lot of this technology has been around for years, but then there's been all this recent interest in, in recent months because of the launch of uh, this new tool, ChatGBT, uh, which is seen as having taken it to another level uh, in terms of its performance and how accessible it makes it. Uh, so it's a relatively new tool, this. ChatGPT, but basically it uh, allows people to search for information and for answers and to have replies and resources uh, which are generated to uh, a level of detail which lots of people see as being a game changer. So there's a slide here which gives you an idea of how it works. You know, so I could go on to ChatGPT, I could say I'm writing an article about you, all of the cool things you can do, just could you say hello to my readers and give us a quick self-introduction, and I'd like it to be friendly and casual, include a silly joke, and then with a note about how great the rest of my article is. And instantly you get this response that my name is Assistant, and a large language model trained by OpenAI, and I'm here to help answer your questions and provide you with information on a wide variety of topics, and so it goes on. And uh, <coughs> I gather that you can ask this uh, tool not just for information you can ask it to come back in a certain style with a certain tone of response and what uh, many people are saying is that the sophistication 
uh, of answers which the tool generates as it searches across the web for lots of different types of data and information and generates a response is incredible. And uh, there is often uh, a slightly bland uh, or generic feel about the text produced, but it's getting better all the time. So you can do lots of things with this. I could be planning for Good Friday and say, can you write me the order of service for Good Friday? That includes traditional Easter hymns and a liturgy from the Celtic tradition. And it will do it. Uh, give me a draft of a presentation on how people make sense of violence in the Old Testament. It was interesting. We have some good friends uh, up from Exeter for the weekend. And um, they were talking about how they're good friends with... Uh, an academic at uh, Exeter University, and he, he went to ChatGPT uh, and said, write me a New Testament article in the style of David Horrell. And um, it came back, uh, it came back with stuff which was, was pretty, pretty powerful. And uh, this is what this tool can do. Uh, and some of us might see it as very helpful uh, and uh, as a labor-saving device, but there are lots of questions this raises, aren't there? Uh, which uh, are quite problematic. I could be a university student uh, who instead of um, having to pull an all-nighter to finish an essay just goes to ChatGPT and says, write me a third-year university uh, essay on how responsible Churchill was for winning World War II. Uh, and uh, not sure what Spurgeon's uh, are doing. We might find out, I don't know, Stephen, uh, in a while, but... Um, you know, this is understandably of concern uh, to academics, for example. I mean, it's obviously not plagiarism because it's not copying, but it's still leaving the work to uh, a machine. And it raises the sorts of concerns we had uh, about the painting. So, yes, it can create an essay for me, but has it created something new? You know, if it's just going across all the information out there and taking that and producing it in a new way. Is that new? Are there actual new insights? Has something creative emerged? And, um, and as I said, this is just an ex one example, I think. I almost wonder whether this has just made us aware of stuff which has been happening more and more uh, for quite a long time, and it's just making us aware of how it's pushing the boundaries. So some of the other ways this technology is being used might not come as a shock to us. We're frequently told about how we now live in the era of big data. And so during the pandemic, that was something really interesting. We, we noticed, we all learned, that uh, some of the most powerful people trying to battle the pandemic weren't just scientists, but they were statisticians. So we all heard about the R rates, and we all had to familiarize ourselves with uh, what people were analyzing and predicting what it would do next. The banking industry uses this sort of technology to look at patterns in markets, to predict what's going to happen next, to find investment opportunities, and lots of other uses too. So if you ever listen to music on an app like Spotify, have you ever had a message saying, you, know, you seem to like X, Y, and Z. Why don't you listen to A, B, and C? And Techniques used by social media companies, they can tailor adverts especially for you. They offer you suggestions uh, on who to follow. And the implications of this are um, far more extensive than we might realize. Um, 
when I was preparing for tonight, I read this, this really excellent book. It's called The Robot Will See You Now, um, edited by John Wyatt and Stephen Williams, a collection of essays, and I find it really helpful. And um, in, in one of the essays in this book, um, Stephen Williams and another writer, Nathan Mladen, talk about how the capacity to predict and ultimately manipulate human behavior with this new technology is staggering. Indeed, big data allows tech companies to predict a range of characteristics beyond those that people disclose on social media. So attributes such as gender, age, political orientation, but also more granular information such as history of drug use, parental separation, whether one is HIV positive or not, can all be predicted with a high degree of accuracy. For example, it takes only 68 Facebook likes, regardless for which sorts of posts, to predict patterns of alcohol consumption, sexual orientation, and mental health. So this is big stuff uh, going on all the time, and obviously it raises significant questions. Not only about who has access to information on people, which I think most of us would consider to be private, even though we've put it out there, but also who is taking this information and who is using it. So some of us might remember a couple of years ago the Cambridge Analytica scandal, where there was this company that was basically collecting lots of data from people, uh, was from Facebook, without their consent, and then using it to target them for political advertising. And so during uh, the Brexit um, referendum and uh, Trump selection, I think that was kind of when this, this was a really big a big thing. And then just a final example, came across this last month as well, uh, which comes from the world of medicine. Maybe another headline that we saw uh, about a month ago, the news that loyalty card data from women uh, who were buying over-the-counter medicine could provide uh, an early indicator of ovarian cancer. So interesting, a lot of women who got this diagnosis were buying so indigestion medication. So that's interesting as well. This could be a game changer. This could be a lifesaver. This could help spot um, problems uh, in women's health uh, that could literally save their lives if they're treated quickly. Uh, but there are important questions, aren't there? Who owns this data? Do, do you want your doctor to know what you buy at the supermarket? Not just your medication, but other stuff. And uh, there are just a few more examples to consider because we've talked mainly about patterns in data and how they can be analyzed and future patterns predicted. Uh, and in each case there, we're talking about software programs and processes which can be used to calculate and think. But there are other ways this technology is being used, uh, even about machines and a capacity that they have to calculate or to talk uh, or to respond. And uh, I thought we'd just explore this a little bit now. So, um, you know, anyone who has an Alexa device or similar smart speaker in the home will be aware of this. You can actually talk to these machines. You can give them instructions and they will say things back and you have that sense of interaction. But there are other applications too. So what I want to do for the rest of my time is just talk about four examples of this and ask some questions and then spend a little bit of time offering suggestions of a Christian response 
So we've talked about um, predictions and data, but just a few more examples, four more examples. Question to consider, how do we feel about cars that can drive themselves? It's another way this uh, technology is going. And as many of us will know, this is not an abstract question. It's being seen as one of the next big frontiers for the car industry, the transport industry. It's already happening in some places. Um, and uh, there are people who are advocates, and then there are stories of where this goes wrong, fatally, uh, on some occasions. But it raises other questions, doesn't it? It's not just how do we feel about a car that can drive itself, uh, whether driving should be pleasurable in any way. Should you enjoy that? Do you just delegate that to a machine to do it for you? But who owns this technology? And how are they going to use it? So one of the companies which is most invested in driverless cars is Uber, who uh, seem to be working towards a future in which those pesky uh, people who have to be employed to actually drive cars might one day be removed entirely from the operating model. Lots of people drive for a living. Uh, cabbies and lorry drivers and bus drivers. For some people, it's been kind of one of the last resorts almost. Well, if my job doesn't work out, I mean, you can always be a cabbie for a while. So what are the human implications? And it doesn't raise this just about cars and automation, what are the human implications of getting rid of lots of jobs which are currently done by people and might be automated in the future? And how will people provide for themselves when lots of the jobs that we currently do have been eliminated? Or will they need to be provided for? So there are some people who are looking at what is going on now and looking at changes in technology and saying, for example, we may need to look at some kind of universal income to provide for people as lots of traditional industries uh, are phased out. And some people will see that as a kind of utopia uh, that we are heading for. We're not going to have to work as hard. Uh, life will be all about leisure and we'll just have machines to do the heavy lifting. Um, but is that utopia? Is, is that a world which is satisfactory? Uh, doesn't part of being made in the image of God include uh, being people who are creative and who says to, uh, who, who are told by their creator, go forth and multiply, and do stuff uh, and tame the earth. And uh, we also need to acknowledge other questions of power when you ask this question. So as most of us will know, uh, those who own this technology and social media companies and those who create new tools and devices end up becoming people of immense power and wealth. Immense power. So how much power do we want to be in their hands? Another question uh, to think about. How do we feel about robots that can kill? That's another disturbing question, but uh, it's not an abstract one. Because most of us will know that the use of drones in modern warfare has been increasing significantly in recent years. And uh, often for surveillance and for spying, uh, but also to kill. And uh, they are just uh, one example of autonomous weaponry, uh, which again raises lots of questions. It enables countries to fight uh, without the cost of committing troops on the ground. But who is ultimately responsible 
uh, for the actions which these machines carry out. Do these weapons make it too easy for us to fight wars? So traditionally, I'm sure most of us would agree, certainly we would agree, that war should always be a last resort, even if we fight it at all. And one of the questions of fighting a war is, can we actually bring ourselves to commit people from our own country to go and potentially lose their lives? That question becomes, are we happy enough just to send our robots off? Um, it, it changes the question, doesn't it? But it's, it's stuff that we, we have to consider. And then the third question, how do we feel about robots uh, that care? And uh, again, this is not uh, abstract. Uh, it might not be something we're grappling with much in the UK, but um, it's becoming more of an issue in other countries. This is a picture from Japan on the screen. And uh, the sort of cuddly little thing which the old lady is looking at is Paro. And Paro is a robotic uh, seal. Uh, he or she, uh, or whatever we call it, uh, is used in Japan in hospitals and nursing homes and uh, provides therapy and a sense of companionship to patients. Uh, and in other countries too. Really clever, these devices. So um, each of these robots has five kinds of sensors. Touch, uh, light, sound, temperature, movement. So very sophisticated. And that means that they can convey a whole range of emotions. So it can be happy, it can be cross, it can make a noise like a baby seal when it is touched uh, in a certain way. Now the Japanese have a population which is aging really rapidly. And they, s they are surprisingly comfortable with this. Um, and there are some who will say that there are lots of reasons uh, for doing that. Um, which are complicated as well, to say the least. So caregiving roles in Japan are often performed by migrant workers. Uh, and in other cultures, they're performed by migrant workers. Japan is very hostile to migrants coming in, and they have an aging population. Uh, and they seem to be happy enough for robots to do this. But I, I would just raise again, what are the questions that this, um, this picture raises? So there may be some patients who uh, are so afflicted with dementia uh, that if they're given a robotic seal, they think, well, it's a real one. And they might seem content with its company, but isn't that a kind of deception? What do we think? Are we really caring for someone if we give them a device and say that will be enough? And... Um, then a final question to consider. I'm not going to talk about this for very long, just tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but how do we feel about robot priests? And uh, again, it's not uh, a theoretical question. This is uh, Pepper, uh, who is a robot priest uh, and has been conducting uh, Buddhist funerals in Japan since 2017. So uh, there you go. I don't think it's taken off in a big way. <laughs> By the way, I, don't, I mean, I, yeah, there are limits, aren't there, to everything. So they're not yet signing up for this in a massive way. So it's just a whistle-stop tour of a big subject. And um, it might be some of us are familiar with this. It might be new news. And I guess I d I, I'm raising this not to be alarmist uh, and not to be deliberately Luddite. Because I realize, I mean... What we're thinking about here, every new technology since the dawn of time raises ethical questions, and every new technology raises potential for good 
uh, and, and cursing. So whether it's the printing press or the industrial revolution uh, or nuclear power, you know, we all know this, but as the changes arrive, I think we need to grapple with them. And um, I was preparing for tonight, and I remembered, you know that, that quote that, that we, we often um, uh, go to on occasions uh, like this? It's that list of David's mighty men, First Chronicles 12. It talks about the men of Issachar, and uh, they understood the times, and therefore they knew what Israel should do. Something about understanding the times, isn't there? Uh, and knowing how.
generation of machines that can think because actually humans are merely people who think and calculate. So a classic example of this is uh, a definition uh, from uh, the American psychologist Steven Pinker. I think it's Jewish in background, but um, uh, an atheist. And Pinker says that uh, the cognitive feats of the brain can be explained in physical terms. To put it crudely, and critics notwithstanding, we can say that beliefs are a kind of information, thinking a kind of computation, and motivation a kind of feedback and control. Doesn't make your heart sing, <laughs> really, does it? But there are people who will say that. When we think, we are just calculating. We are taking bits of information and we're processing it. But to me, that's a long way from the vision of humanity that you find in Genesis 1. So remember there, go back to the crucial words from the end of that chapter, that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, okay, there's clearly lots going on there. We don't have time to unpack it now. But, but just think for a minute what, what this is saying to us. It seems to be saying that, that however we are made, there is something fundamentally relational about who we are. Uh, and, and there is something in that relational bit of who we are which bears the image of God. And tellingly, neither male nor female can bear it on their own. Um, there is something about God's image that, that cannot be borne by a man or a woman, but you put people together in relationship, in community, and something more is revealed. And there is this call to create and to name animals and to help creation flourish and to bring order to it, uh, and a call to work. So there's something here about uh, creation is not complete. God seems to be saying, go and take what I have done and uh, run with it. And uh, clearly work becomes a burden, doesn't it, after the fall. But I, I don't think it's originally conceived of as such. Uh, it seems that uh, God has deliberately created us as people who are makers uh, and thinkers uh, and so forth. It's just worth asking the question, does artificial intelligence create in that way. Uh, so you think back to uh, that painting of Edward de Bellamy. Is, is it fulfilling our, our vocation to be creative? Uh, and interesting as well, Genesis reminds us of the importance of creating. It, it also seems to offer uh, a call to do so in a way which keeps on being submitted to God. So interesting as well, before too long in Genesis, you reach the story of the Tower of Babel, which seems to be a warning. Be careful with your technology and what you do, and don't overreach yourself. So just interesting things to remind ourselves. Um, but but I, I, I do think as well, there's something fundamental. We don't want to distract ourselves from this, this issue as well. What does Genesis 1 say about why humans are special we are made in the image of God. And I just wonder as well whether there's something there to hold on to, that ultimately it's not because of capacities we have, 
uh, that somehow make us superior to other creatures. It's because God loves us and God values us. So there's almost a fear uh, that you see. I mean, this is a classic thing in sci-fi. What if the robots take over? It is, isn't it? So many, how many issues of episodes of Doctor Who have you watched or sci-fi novels where the machine becomes bigger? But in a lot of this writing, there's a fear. What happens if the robots become cleverer than us? and have greater capacity than us. And I, I just wonder if there's something to remind ourselves of. You know what, well, even if they do, God will still love us. God will care for humanity and want to be in relationship with us. And maybe this brings us back to John's Gospel. It's one of the things I've just found time and time again, uh, you know, when you look at John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't offer us water and light and bread and so forth. He always speaks of himself as being those things. Um, in chapter 14, we'll look at it in a little while, he speaks of himself as the way, the truth, uh, and, and the life. There's something as well about how, you know, what we need as humans is relationship with God. We don't need hum information. Uh, we don't need a capacity to think. We don't, you know, God is not presented to us as just a great big, repository of divine information <laughs> that we can download from. He's someone who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. And uh, I think as well, you know, the other thing that, that we see so much about humans in, in the Bible as well is that we are not just brains that think, we are also embodied creatures. We're made to love. And um, we're made to give and receive love and to build uh, relationships and to create and to enjoy beauty. Um, that's a long way from that and that just a brain that thinks, isn't it? Then a second point that uh, encourages to think about, uh, I, I guess maybe just a call to keep on insisting that humans have needs which can only be met by other humans. So we thought about Genesis 1, you move on to Genesis 2, there are these readings you find in the second chapter. The Lord God said, it isn't good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I, I think that's very powerful. You know, Adam looks at her and he just thinks, Here is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I can have a relationship with her because she's like me. <laughs> um, it's just something here about what it means to be human as well. We need other people to relate to. And I just wonder whether, is this going to become one of the more distinctive things about the mission of the church in the future and one of the ways we communicate God's love? Uh, the churches are going to become more and more places where you can actually form authentic relationships and where love and community can be found and where the companionship that you can't find with a machine, you know, where loneliness is just an epidemic in our society, can, can be met. Um, 
And you know, it's interesting, you look at technology, more and more we are discovering what is being lost in relationships because of how we are becoming enslaved to technology. We are discovering that children's development in early years is being significantly hindered uh, because of a lack of attention and eye contact. Because they have parents who are doing this all the time and not looking uh, at them. And uh, children need love and nurturing and care. And we need it at the other end of life as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I would just want to ask the question, if societies can't find enough humans to care, shouldn't they be asking different questions to care for a role to people than can we build a robot to do this job? Shouldn't we be asking questions, well, why can't we find people to care? Why is caring not valued? Uh, as a profession. Um, then just one other uh, point uh, or, or issue on this point. As I was preparing for this evening, uh, another um, essay I read uh, in the book I referred to was by John Wyatt, who's a Christian doctor, and he makes a really interesting, powerful point about the sort of responses uh, which are often generated by uh, online programs or speech-sensitive devices. Now, this is on point, I think. It's striking that many young tech specialists, so the people who create this sort of technology, seem to have a simplistic and instrumentalist understanding of relationships. And at the risk of oversimplification, the programmer seems to assume that the primary purpose of a relationship with another human is to meet an individual's emotional needs and to give him or her positive internal feelings. So if a relationship with a machine is capable of evoking warm and positive emotions, it can be viewed as an effective substitute for a human being. Now that's uh, quite a pointed remark, but I think he's onto something. So machines may well be compliant. They might say, you might have a little robotic companion that says compliant things to you, but humans are not. One day you might meet a human who loses their temper with you or who gets frustrated with you, or doesn't comply to your wishes. Are you prepared for that if your experience of interaction is largely with devices? Maybe you need an antidote. Maybe you need to be in a community called a church, for example, where you meet people from different cultures and different backgrounds, and you rub up against each other, and you frustrate each other, but iron sharpens iron. And then just a final point uh, before we have some conversation. Uh, so just a call to think carefully about what new technology we use and what we are more uh, more wary of. And um, I guess I, I just thought I'd finish by pointing us towards the Amish communities uh, of North America. And uh, I'm sure we've heard of the Amish, but um, when any new technology is being introduced into the uh, Amish community, they ask two questions. So they will firstly ask, does this new technology provide tangible benefits? And if the answer is yes, they will go with it. Uh, so they use antibiotics, <laughs> and they use modern diagnostic techniques for medicine, and they use mechanised mowers and hay balers and, and so on. It's not all like Harrison Ford and Witness, not these days. But then they will also ask a question, how will this new technology affect our relationships? 
And because of that, they will forbid the individual ownership of anything that would be considered a status symbol. So a car uh, or a smartphone, uh, televisions are forbidden because televisions weaken social ties. They become a focus for people. Now, it's an extreme approach. And, um, you know, I'm not suggesting we all get a horse and trap and go around Selsden, and that's how you recognize the Baptists. But I think they're on to something. And, um, you know, it raises a powerful challenge. Um, I recognize a lot of us might struggle to live without our smartphones because we, I mean, we use them to do everything. Um, our sat navs, there are cameras, there are dictionaries, there are banking tools. But can we at least um, think differently about how we use them? So just a final quote to leave you with. And, and the question, I guess, with this is, you know, to what extent are we people who are critical consumers of what comes our way? Or are we just using all of this stuff mindlessly? And um, uh, here's a final quote for the evening. Um, again, from, from this book and from that same essay I looked at earlier from Nathan Ladin and Stephen Williams. They talk about how this technology and big tech undermines our ability to choose what we are being transformed into and a kind of minds or influences our subconscious desires in ways we're often not aware of. So it's as if we cede our agency to choose how we are changed and we are continually being bombarded with someone else's desires for us, which are often that we could consume with minimal moral consideration or restraint. So really, just think about that. A thought, I looked at this again tonight, and you know, Philippians 4, Paul says, whatsoever things are lovely, pure, and so on, think on these things. And you know, any time I turn on my smartphone and I scroll through Twitter, and those ads are coming at me, which the machines have programmed just for me, um, I am making myself open to other people shaping my desires and what I want. And, you know, we might be a bit canny or savvy and think, well, when I'm watching an advert on the TV, I'm, I'm, I'm knowing and I'm aware of the rules and the game and how it works. But, um, you know, do we just realize that all of these algorithms and all of the suggestions that come your way and say, ah, you seem to like that restaurant, you give that a good rating on TripAdvisor, why don't you go to the next restaurant down the road? All of that you're handing over to this technology, your choices, uh, and what you uh, are, are thinking uh, about doing. And in all of that, are you handing over almost the, the, the capacity to say, what is the best for me? So how do we just step back and say, I'm not, I'm not going to reject all of this, but I just need to be a bit more knowing and a bit more cautious every time I pick it up about what's going on. So I hope that's been helpful. And um, like I said, I don't want to cause this anxiety or fear, but, but just, just put some of this stuff on the table. Because I, I think I um, had a conversation for the evening where somebody suggested this is maybe one of the biggest changes in the world in the last 20 years. It is. It's huge. And we, we just need to talk about it. So I just thought maybe we'll get into two groups. So we just have a bit of time of conversation and then come back at the end, see what we make of this. Uh, be interested to see what we make of this. I mean, are we worried? Are we anxious? Is it good? Is it an opportunity? Uh, is, is there some other way we regard it? And um, 
And then what other responses do we want to add? There might be other things you're thinking of, other stuff that you've read. There's lots of stuff uh, out there about this stuff at the minute. I just couldn't read every article uh, or every link that I came across, but I'm sure some of the rest of us will, will have ideas. So I don't know, should we take 15 minutes? Thanks, just to talk about this and, and come back and see what we think. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. So uh, I, I don't know how we got on, whether um, we, we whether there were any particular conclusions or any comments. Uh, it's a huge subject, isn't it? So it's, it's um, but uh, yeah, I don't know whether there were any particular highlights. I could use this roaming mic, but I don't know that we need to because <laughs> there aren't very many. Yeah, do you want me to, Mark? Okay. For the recording, yeah. On. Yeah, I don't know if any there were any particular thoughts that you had from your groups that uh, you wanted to share. Or, uh. Sorry, Chris, I'll give that to you. Yeah, I think Terry has highlighted some very salient points and something that obviously is related to our faith. Yeah. Um, but I would recommend that we do read around this area. I mean, there's some excellent articles on, uh, if you look in Google, and uh, Sabah Salah, who's the data manager for Deloitte um, Consultants, and he outlines mm -hmm. five points that are well worth a read and, and that we perhaps should or shouldn't consider, but I think they're very helpful in understanding the whole subject. Yeah, that's that's a helpful link. So yeah, the, the the delight thing. Thanks, Chris. And I mentioned, uh, like I said, I mean, a this this was very very helpful um, to me. Um, it's it's edited by by John Wyatt uh, and Stephen Williams. And I I've I've read a couple of books. I mean, John Wyatt's a really helpful writer on ethics and medicine and so on. And he was interviewed, I think, on the Unbelievable podcast, which Justin Braley does a few weeks ago. But if you go on to YouTube, Justin Braley, he's a, a, a Christian journalist, interviews John Wyatt for about an hour. I didn't listen to all of it, uh, just the first few minutes. But he's, he's really good, John Wyatt, uh, as well, on, on all manner of ethical, medical, technological uh, stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Any other... Uh It's a starter for ten, probably this, isn't it? And and, and I realised it was it was never going to be possible to to kind of say, well, we we've done that uh, and we can tick that box and move on. 
but uh, we might come back to it. And I guess, yeah, it really, it, it I, I suppose my, my desire was just more to put this stuff on the agenda and say, like with a lot of stuff, you can't always get an answer, can you? But if you just, if you just alert to what's going on uh, and and uh, and what the joke is, <laughs> uh, there's hopefully less of a chance of the jokes on you. I suppose, yeah. It's it's yeah. Adam, sorry. Yeah, thanks. Um, I just we were saying in the group just to kind of test out some of these new AI chatbot type things, and the one that's been in the news a lot is the is the chat GPT thing. Um, I asked it over the weekend to write a Christian worship song in the style of Graham Kendrick and then write music to go along with it. And it actually wrote something pretty good from a, from a yeah. you know, standing back and looking at perspective. But I in our group, I guess we were saying that um, to the difference is, is that if, if, s if you've written a song and you've prayed about it and you've consulted with God and the Holy Spirit and scriptures and other Christians and all the rest of it, that's what makes it sort of special and unique and an act of worship. So I guess even if nobody knew that an AI had written it, you could argue that the sort of foundation behind it is not the same. So I guess that could be applied in some ways. And I think especially in creative arts, it's a lot about the process that goes into it, not just the end result. And I think that's part of, you know, the, the art and the and the worship is is the process. Um, but but you could argue against that as well, I suppose. And the other thing, um, I guess, is around touching on the caring point is also I, I was um, reading about sort of love in in from an AI perspective, and you know, if you could articulate how you love somebody in a way that a computer could understand it and replicate it already there's people who are can't struggling to differentiate and that sort of throws up a whole load of other problems but but i think there is a lot of use for it and i think in the medical industry they've seen quite a lot of of, yeah. of positive uses of robotics anyway not necessarily pure ai but um in terms of um diagnosis and sort of you know, a doctor knows what they know from their education and experience, but often they learn from when they see things that they've never seen before. But if you could harvest mm. all the data from all the doctors, you know, there's 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 a lot of thinking that that's going to save, you know, millions of lives in in the not too distant future. So I think we shouldn't be anxious about that. But yeah, there's yeah. clearly areas that that there's um, that we should be looking at from a, an ethical perspective. Yeah, I've heard that that theory, y y you know, and I, I mean, gosh, can you imagine a doctor saying the remote Himalayas or whatever with ChatGPT in a 3D printer and what they could do? Y you know, it could, could be remarkable. Um, I, I think Rory Stewart's quite interesting and Alistair Campbell, they, they've offered reflections along those lines, haven't they? But yeah, the creativity thing, and just as we were sitting talking as well, who was it? There was some community of the First Baptists who got together, and one of the things that they said is that God hath yet more light and truth to break forth from his word. I mean, one of the things that we believe 
is that God can always say something new to us. You know, every Sunday someone somewhere uh, might be preaching a sermon or, or picking up their Bible uh, and God will say something new <laughs> from his word. It, it has that capacity to, to generate newness. And if we only ever limit ourselves to what has been before, what are we losing out on? Yeah, and, and, uh, and definitely something about relationship. You know, we, we, we believe that relationship is, or truth is embodied, isn't it? Not just in Jesus being embodied and coming to us, but it's discovered in flesh and blood in community with people around us. Yeah. If we believe, I mean, if we took this this logical conclusion, don't go to church again. Just sit at home, talk to ChatGPT, and um, and and listen to podcasts. So you'll be fine. Yeah. Any other uh, thoughts? Oh, thank you. <laughs> I hope it's been helpful. And um, yeah, um, I I think um, the next Sunday night theology. Are we sort of for June, Linda? Is that uh, June the twenty fifth? Do you want to say is it? It's on the theme of tax justice, isn't it? be brilliant now and thanks um, Linda sorry to put you in the spot but I thought it'd be good to talk about this and I mean blimey if technology is all around us money is as well and I, and I think just to reflect on that together would be, be really good but yeah can I pray before we before we go thank you again uh, just for the chance to come together and talk about these things and um, it's it's been good it's been good to talk about this we thank you for, for the opportunity and I just pray that as we go um, we wouldn't be afraid because you love us and uh, life is always stronger than death and your love stronger than fear. And uh, we remind ourselves as we keep reminding ourselves in every time we pick up John's gospel that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. So thank you that as we go into the night now, you go with us and your light uh, goes with us also. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.